Welcome to Solidity Galaxy Brain. Today, my guest is Steve Klebanoff. Steve has been developing Solidity contracts for several years, first at 0x, then as an independent developer artist, and now as a member of PartyDAO, creators of the collective NFT bidding and fractionalization dApp, PartyBid. In this episode, Steve shares stories about his early days in crypto, writing ARB bots against Ether Delta, and the two years he spent as tech lead at Dex Protocol 0x. We get into the nitty gritty on three of Steve's projects, the Bronx Zoo, a fractionalized CryptoVoxel zoo plot, Rats.Art, a free art-for-art art NFT trading portal, and Solvency, his NFT collaboration with WebGL artist Ezra Miller. We cover a lot of other topics, from trash art to OpenSea's API, and even some new party bid features. I hope you enjoy the show. Steve, thanks for joining me on Solidity Galaxy Brain. Yeah, happy to be here. <laughs> so uh, I guess the best place to get started is... Um, like, what were you up to before we met? We met sometime in, I think, early 2021, something like that. Uh, but I know you had this whole life before, right, at Zero X. Yeah, definitely. So I was like a hobbyist in Ethereum while working like a traditional um, job as like a staff software engineer at a um, SaaS company. Uh, but I got really into Ethereum in like late 2016, early 2017, and first started off as just like an interesting thing that I was researching and, you know, bought some ETH and, you know, watched it rise and fall in value. But then the things really changed for you when I actually started using Ethereum to interact with dApps. And the first dApp that I used was Ether Delta, like the OG decentralized exchange back in the day. Um, and that really showed me the power of Ethereum smart contracts and what it means to have like immutable censorship resistant um, code running 24 seven on a, on an open blockchain. So I was like buying and selling a variety of altcoins. And prior to using ether Delta, I was used to using Binance and I had frustrations with Binance where it's like, man, Binance goes down. Um, I'm worried about them custodying my funds because there's been plenty of centralized exchange hacks that have gone on like around that time that made me uneasy. And there's sometimes when I really want to trade, but like uh, finance might be down and they won't let me execute that trade. So when I started use, and there was only a subset of assets that I could trade on there. So when I saw Ether Delta, um, you know, flaws and all, um, I was like, wow, this is incredible. Like I can, I know that my funds are custodied by an open source smart contract. I know that as long as the Ethereum blockchain is running, like I'll be able to trade. Um, and I can also trade any asset that I want for better or for worse, right? So um, that just showed me some real material benefits of these um, decentralized applications. And that got me really, really hooked. Um, and I started working on some arbitrage um, across uh, decentralized exchanges and centralized exchanges, wrote some API integrations with both Ether Delta and then Zero uh, X at the time was really impressed with the code that zero X had, um, and ended up joining there and, and working there full time, uh, where I worked at zero X full time for about two years before going, um, independent to, to pursue some other ventures. But during that time, um, at zero X, I definitely, uh, learned a lot and I have like a huge amount of respect for that team. So when you first discovered, like you were trading on Binance and ether Delta, that was like 2017, 18, something like that. Yeah. 27, 2017. Uh, and yeah, I, I never used Ether Delta, so it's like a predecessor to Uniswap, basically. 
It was more of like uh, it was yeah, but it was like all order book based. It was more oh, of a zero okay. X style model where um and it was it had some differences. It was it was just a or, it was like a order. It was actually off chain orders. So um you know these orders were stored in some centralized database, but it was like on chain um you know settlement. Uh, and they had a standard UI that was pretty pretty janky and also it like got hacked at one point. So like even back then, just for like um, security, I was like downloading their minified source code and always running a local copy instead of using the one hosted on their site because <laughs> I was afraid of the site getting compromised. Uh, and that did happen. But it, yeah, it was just like a, it was an order book based uh, Dex with off chain orders. And uh, it was pretty funny because there'd be a lot of fat finger orders that arbitrage bots would uh, take advantage of as well because there was no validation on the front end. So people might try to sell something for like 0.6 ETH and fat finger like 0.06 ETH. And uh, there were a lot of losses that happened on there as well. And as well as big market inefficiencies between Ether Delta and the centralized exchanges because it was only like a relatively small group of hobbyists uh, that were using Ether Delta. Um, and that's what I think like allowed for some of the market inefficiencies that I was able to take advantage of at the time. That's so funny. Uh, so basically the original board apes, but actually one thing you, okay. I want to know about well, zero, well, zero X. One more note. One, yeah. one more note about the original board apes. Like they also literally allowed an ability. If you didn't want to use MetaMask, you could paste in your seat, like your private oh, key no. directly into the app. But like it worked and like it didn't actually send it off anywhere until like for a few days it got hacked and it was. So that's the other similarity to uh, board apes is that, yeah, they have you pasting your private keys everywhere. What was that most recent, uh, the DeFi company that got caught asking people to input their seed phrase? I don't remember. It was like... Oh, I, I, I saw that. I don't I, I don't remember who that was, but yeah, I did see that that was an option for logging in. So I guess, yeah, that's still happening today, surprisingly enough. Actually, what it really reminded me of it, from my personal experience is uh, Arweave, actually. <laughs> were you, were you, at least back in the day when I was playing with it in the summer uh, 2021, you, you just dragged in your, your private key, right? There's a JSON file they expect you to download. And then, yeah, like in the early like versions of it, yeah, you would just like drag and drop that JSON file into a web application to, to interact with Arweave. It's interesting because I, like, I guess Ethereum was the same not so long before I got involved, but uh, mm -hmm. just didn't have to experience that part. Okay, so my experience of 0x is primarily through Matcha, um, mm -hmm. which I use and love. I guess I've been thinking lately about sort of MEV stuff. If that, if if I should be thinking about that, but what what was your what did you get up to at Zero X? Were you working on Matcha yourself? Um, I was working on some things that plugged into the to Matcha. Um, but when I first started working there, it was still pretty early, and we were working on a thing called Zero X uh, Instant, which was like a little pluggable widget that you could put into any site that like allowed uh, the facilitation of, you know, ERC-20 um, trading uh, from any site and people could earn an affiliate fee through like kind of routing orders through this interface. And that was Zero X kind of like first attempt of building their own UX for their uh, protocol. Previously, Zero X had been focused on giving grants and building developer tools to expect other people to build on their uh, protocol. And Zero X Instant was the first kind of in-house Zero X uh, project that was built. And then, you know, as you mentioned later on, they really went all in on building their own products, including like the flagship uh, Matcha, which I think was a was a really great um, decision for them. But a lot of my time at Zero X, especially towards the end, was actually focused on the market making side. So building tooling and infrastructure to allow market makers to you know provide good liquidity in the zero x ecosystem and that started off as just helping support like the open order book system of you know helping them post 
off-chain orders to uh, relayers and getting kind of insights about how to best do that and provide really good tooling for that. But it actually later evolved into uh, developing and architecting uh, the request for quote system, which um, drives a lot of volume on Matcha right now, which is the concept that there's a lot of really great open liquidity, you know, Uniswap, SushiSwap, all of the DEXs that we know and love. It's great to source liquidity from those sources, but you can also provide really good pricing through doing requests for quotes uh, to private market makers. So when you sign into Matcha um, and you make a request, in addition to searching all of the open liquidity sources, it also pings private market makers with your Ethereum address, like how much you want to like buy and sell of what asset. And then there are these native market makers that will provide zero X orders uh, to compete with that public liquidity. Um, and because they are signing an order for the specific address that wants to make the trade, they can also like provide customized pricing, like based on that Ethereum address, who's who they're trading with, which they might have some previous information about, you know, whether they're kind of like a normal retail actor or if they're a bot or, you know, display some other behavior. So that system uh, is now that, yeah, driving, you know, pretty significant uh, amounts of volume for major pairs on Matcha and then also uh, through Xerox API, which powers Matcha and powers like a bunch of other DeFi products. So what's the financial incentive for them in that case? It's, it, they can make more money by answering these requests for quotes than by just straight liquidity providing in a DEX? Yeah, I mean, they can provide custom quotes for different scenarios, and they also have information about the public uh, liquidity sources, which they can try to outprice. Um, and, you know, sometimes they make money. Sometimes they can provide better sp spreads if they know who they're um, interacting with and they kind of know what they're competing with as well, right? So the DEX is that when you provide liquidity on Uniswap, for example, you don't anybody could be taking your liquidity. It could be an arbitrage bot, it could be a liquidator bot, it could be a retail consumer. Uh, but with request, the request for quote system, you know the actual Ethereum address of who is taking your order, um, and you also know what the competition is, and you can also provide like just-in-time pricing, right? So instead of just being like, let me delegate like my liquidity to like this, you know, X times Y equals K like math model and just kind of let it do its thing, you can, you know, people run these uh, backend servers that, you know, at any given time, based on a variety of you know on-chain and off-chain factors, can provide a custom quote given who they're dealing with, as well as external market conditions and what the competition is. So it's like a different um, kind of like a different kind of archetype of market maker who is providing this service compared to like the you know retail Uniswap LP. But when you have these advanced market makers running these algorithms, like providing quotes directly to customers, like with all of that context, you can get really competitive pricing. And then also they're serving them up uh, really gas optimized zero X orders. Um, and when matcha, right. when matcha puts together your, what I affectionately call like an order salad, which might be like 25% Uniswap, like 50% sushi swap, you know, whatever, like a different arrangement of different decks orders to serve the retail customer. Um, it takes into account gas costs. So like if the market maker can provide competitive pricing and then like the gas cost that it takes to actually execute that is less than, you know, some of the other on-chain DEXs and makes for like better pricing for the retail customer. Have you taken a look at CowSwap, by the way? Because some, some of what you're talking, it's not exactly the same thing with a request for quote, but they do matching between 0x style permits, like in a kind of flashbot way, from what I understand. Have you taken a look at that at all? I have not seen that. It sounds interesting. It's cool. I think Gnosis uh, built it. Um, mm -hmm. but it, I think it's like Gnosis V2. I don't really understand the whole Gnosis architecture so well, but it seemed, anyway, it's mm -hmm. interesting in, in a similar kind of wheelhouse. Um, cool. But I actually wanted to know, so we, we talked about this a long time ago, but 
uh, like OpenSea is based on this Wyvern contract, which I think has like at least some inspiration, took, took inspiration from Zero X. Is that right? I mean, I, I, I can't say if the developers took inspiration, you know, or, or not. I don't really kind of like know the whole chain of events there, but I can say that it's like, you know, off-chain orders with on-chain settlement, which is the same model that Zero X follows and kind of the same model that like the original Ether, uh, Ether Delta follows. To me, my experience of it is primarily with um, through OpenSea and that permit-based model, I think is like so essential to what makes OpenSea, gives OpenSea its moat. I think its moat comes from uh, its floor price engine and that's really dependent both on the network effect of people already being there, but primarily that really, but also the free bidding and listing that a permit-based system like ZeroX or, or Wyvern uh, have really lets you, I mean, it's just cheaper to, the information just is drawn into OpenSea because it's so much cheaper to change the price that you can establish a floor, floor, floor price much more effectively than an on-chain uh, marketplace, right? Yeah, so I mean, I think, and just like for the listeners, when you're talking about like the permit-based approach, you're talking about like setting allowances for like, let's say your ETH, for example, like your wrapped ETH, and then being able to make like offers um with that wrapped ETH that like you've given allowance, you gave allowances for, um, like, uh, for, for free. Right. So like you could be like, Hey, I only have one ETH, but I want to make a one ETH offer on, you know, collection A, collection B, collection C. And you could use that same one ETH to like make a variety of different offers with it. So it's really capital efficient. Um, and I think that that is a big benefit to OpenSea. And I think that there are other uh, protocols that like instead prefer to kind of like lock up funds for specific bids or have to have you do like on-chain actions in order to like make an offer or, or place a bid and lock up your funds in that way. And I think that that is like obviously less capital efficient and like more expensive with gas. And I think that at least on Ethereum L1, that's a bit of a hard sell for like main, mainstream adoption. Um, but that being said, like the the off-chain orders definitely prevent or present like some some challenges, especially when it comes to centralization. So all the orders that OpenSea has are just kind of like signed Wyvern orders um, that say, you know, I'm willing to buy this item for this price. And those are all stored in a centralized database that you have to rely on the centralized uh, OpenSea API in order to to distribute. So if their API goes down or if they choose to no longer support the API, like they basically have a big moat of orders that only they know about that other developers don't. Um, so in a way, it's a little bit of a um, kind of like liability for the open ecosystem uh, as well. Totally. And actually, it also opens up them up to a real specific vulnerability with, I don't know if we talked about it recently, but um, <clears throat> the OpenSea API exposing prior permits that people have signed and maybe the UI not making it super clear that that would be the case. So people having their board apes or whatever it is sold at some price that they didn't remember setting. I know that when you go to revoke um, listing prices on OpenSea, it does queue up like all of the transactions in order to invalidate mm -hmm. all of the prior permits. It would actually be nice gas efficiency wise if they would let you just do it once for all, you know, just set do it by nonce or something and let's be done with it. All of my prior listings, uh, let them be nullified for this token ID. But it also means that like actors that were aware that these permits are still available via the OpenSea API, even if they're not served from the front end, uh, are able to just buy NFTs cheaper than people realize that they've got them listed for. Yeah, there's there's like we've seen issues like this happen before, too. But but think about it from OpenSea's perspective, too, in some particular use cases. Like imagine I like post an order saying I'm willing to sell my board ape for, for 50 ETH. And then imagine that like I transfer my board ape like um, like out of my wallet or like let's say that like 
Um, yeah, let's say I transfer it out, um, and then OpenSea stops surfacing that um, order, but then somebody holds on to it, right? Like in their own private database, and then you transfer the board ape back in. And then if that board ape like didn't reset the allowances, um, then somebody could kind of execute that order that isn't surfacing in the OpenSea API anymore. So like, there's lots of tricky things to to be aware of there. Right, right. Someone else could be backing up these permits. It's not just, you can't just remove them from the centralized storage. You really do need to write to the chain right. that you're invalidating the, the permits. Uh, when I was working on a project with a friend uh, earlier in 2021, uh, yeah, I, I mentioned this like nonce idea. Like, I don't know why the permits on a particular NFT couldn't be associated mm. with so that we could invalidate it in any case it's uh but I, yeah so i mean for zero x orders like there there is this idea of you know something similar to this nonce idea where it's like uh people default to using the timestamp to kind of like every time that they uh like posted a zero x order like they associate essentially kind of like a nonce which is usually like the the timestamp um and then you can call this function that's like cancel or all orders up to which is like I want to cancel all orders that are like less than or equal to, um, you know, this particular timestamp. And then that can kind of like wipe out all of your existing, uh, orders on the zero X ecosystem. Yeah. That's nice. That's, that's, uh, that's really handy. And actually we, when we talked some time ago, you mentioned that zero X can actually handle NFTs also, right? Yeah. So zero X, um, from a while ago, I believe it was zero X V two. Uh, but I could be wrong about that. I should, should check my facts. Like, has supports you know has supported 721 and 1155 trades and that's actually what powers uh pseudo swap so um pseudo swap allows for like otc trades like nft to nft nft to eth nft to bat like single nft to basket of, of nfts and that's all powered through through zero x part of and there was actually an early product called box swap um which i think was 2017 which provided pseudo swap style functionality um but it was before the big nft kind of like uh crazed hit so it like never really got in the limelight or, or did a huge amount of volume but um like pseudo swap like trader.xyz style functionality has existed for a while now in the zero x ecosystem but because zero x was like largely used for trading erc20s that's kind of how the the protocol fees that were introduced like made it a little bit cost prohibitive to use it for lower priced um, NFTs. So I think that was a problem with zero X V three, which like, like kind of like damper the adoption of their like NFT orders. But yeah, they, they were pioneers, I think of uh, like the allowing open infrastructure for NFT trading uh, uh, back in the day. Um, and I think, you know, now with PseudoSwap and Trader.xyz and others using it for NFTs and like with some upcoming stuff coming in 0xb4, I think you're going to see, see more adoption of it. That's very cool. Um, all this reminds me of uh, the Zoo Token project that you worked on. That was like a, was it a hackathon at 0x? Yeah, that was a, that was a 0x hackathon project where we, that was actually like one of the first smart contracts that I actually wrote that like went to mainnet and, and did real volume. Uh, where we developed a smart contract which fractionalized um, a crypto voxels parcel, and, and it was my understanding that I think that was the first time that that happened. Yeah, it was very cool. So uh, I, I pulled up the uh, contract deploy transaction, uh, September twenty second, twenty twenty. And if people are listening, they want to check it out. There is this very gorgeous is it it's Brooklyn Zoo? Is that what it's modeled on? It's the Bronx Zoo. Bronx Zoo, sorry. So zootoken.club, uh, and then you can hit a link or whatever, jump into the the voxels. Uh, so it's like this beautiful animal filled zoo space. Maybe tell me a little bit about how the project worked from the start because people could purchase those zoo tokens, right? Yeah. So basically this was like, uh, 
a fun experiment in like um, like neighborhood and like community incentives and like governance. So I have always kind of been interested in group ownership and like group governance and like that has kind of evolved into some of my party party DAO work as well. Um, but for Zootoken, I was like, there's a neighborhood in CryptoVoxels called the Bronx. It's like a cool little island that you can walk around. Like I own a parcel there. Like what would it mean for like the community to like co-own and co-manage like a zoo there? So we just like got all the things in place to make that happen. So we commissioned um, Ogar, who's like a very talented CryptoVoxels uh, builder, um, paid him an ETH to like do this build of a zoo. And then we said, we're going to write a smart contract to fractionalize ownership of this uh, zoo. So relatively naive you know like hackathon style implementation but but it worked so we deposited the crypto voxels parcel into our smart contract and then we uh minted i think it was ten thousand uh tokens yeah ten thousand zoo tokens and then the way that it worked is that we gave away um some of those tokens to the neighbors um and the idea being that like would these neighbors be incentivized uh, to make the Bronx like a nicer place, like this island in crypto voxels, because uh, they could financially, um, you know, benefit from this upcoming sale of the zoo and they have partial ownership in the zoo. So we gave some away to free uh, for free to some neighbors. Uh, we gave some uh, for free away to some community members in crypto voxels. There was like a small Uniswap pool. And we also held a bunch of the zoo tokens in, um, like to be used for governance. And then we like wrote our own kind of like snapshot style, like API where basically we could write up governance proposals that relate to the zoo. So, you know, one thing was like a proposal to, you know, sponsor like the, the wit meetup. Um, and another one was like to like create a, for someone to create a meme. So we, and then this was all leading up to a Dutch auction where the, the zoo was sold and then the proceeds were split amongst all the, the token holders. So, um, like a few months after that on April 20th, like a Dutch auction, uh, started, um, and, uh, the, the zoo was sold and then people could redeem their zoo token as an exchange for like their portion of the ETH of, uh, from that sale. Uh, so it's like, it's kind of similar to some of the other fractionalization mechanisms that you see today, but just like a very special kind of like bespoke, like early use case of it. Very cool to see it as a revenue share for the auction of the zoo parcel at the end. And also, I was looking at the uh, votes and the governance, and yeah, I saw one was uh, for Tom Schmidt to create a meme uh, about the the zoo. I, I wish there was a link to the meme. I want to see what it was. <laughs> yeah, so like we ended up like having, we had like a community call. We had like a pretty fair amount of uh, community engagement, but like there, there weren't any like really meaningful proposals that uh, passed through, but it was still just like a very fun experiment and like it was very cool to see people like buying the token reselling the token neighbors getting on a phone call to like discuss what to do in the zoo and like plan events um and then like have this whole dutch auction mechanism work and somebody actually engage with it so yeah i'm, I'm, I'm proud of that project as like a, a relatively novel like early early experiment and fractionalization yeah, I was reading the contract earlier. Uh, people might want to check out the get price function, which does the Dutch auction calculation. It's pretty cool. If, if people hit the buy function, it calls get price, which calculates the delta between the start time and the end time. And I think essentially multiplies it by the minimum price. Uh, so you get the time remaining time times the minimum price. But it's very cool to see to see a Dutch auction written out in, I don't know, it's only like 40 lines or so, maybe even less. 
a shout out to zero X squad because that was largely like, uh, inspired by like, um, some zero X Dutch auction code that was actually written for NFTs as well, but like, wasn't really widely used. So it, it was cool to, to get inspiration from that. Um, and it's also interesting to see more people do Dutch auctions now. And I think that like the way that we wrote it was, um, like it like ticked down like every block. So like every single block, the price changed. Uh, but that basically means that like by the time the transaction hits, like it's like blocks most likely have been mined unless you use uh, like a very high gas price. So like you always need to spend some gas doing like a very minimal refund. So like if I were to do it again, I kind of like these more like step functions where like um, the price doesn't change every block, like, you know, X amount of blocks go by and then like it, it ticks down a certain amount um, just to not have to just to like have more close guarantees about like the price that you see is the price that you'll pay and not like always having to give a minimal refund uh, because of like blocks passing between you deciding on the price, like you de deciding to purchase and the purchase actually executing on chain. Uh, we'll get to it later, but I'm curious, is that something that you've realized by working on PartyBit? Not necessarily from working on PartyBit. I think it was actually just seeing those like Dutch auction, like seeing that Dutch auction um, like happen on on the Zoo token and just um, like seeing that happen on chain, like made me kind of uh, rethink that, that design decision. Right, makes sense. And it kind of thematically links a little bit, uh, both in terms of the aesthetic and sort of thinking about marketplaces as experiments with the rats.art project. I, I was looking a little bit at the contract. I didn't get as deep into this one, but it's really sophisticated. You're handling 721s, 1155s, issuing tokens. It's a pretty uh, cool contract. Yeah, so Rats is a really fun project that was a collaboration between myself, a few developers, and like Jay DeLay, who's like very into this like trash art movement. I'm not sure if you're familiar Love with that. Love trash art. Love trash art. Robness, yeah, yeah. So Max Osiris, yeah. Hell yeah, yeah. That's like a dope squad of people that are OGs and I don't think get enough recognition. Underrated. Like, very An underrated. Actual like, art movement, you know? Yeah, like, and it's like got like punk rock, like kind of like anarchist, like vibes and aesthetic, like very different squad than like kind of like the clubhouse, like foundation, like kind of like rise, you know, it's like very, I, I love those guys and I think that they, yeah, they have a cool aesthetic and uh, there's a lot of meaning behind uh, what they do, but it's also done in like a very kind of like fun, playful, like anything goes way. Um, so anyway, yeah, so I teamed up with Jay DeLay, yeah, who's very into this trash art stuff. And we were like, let's think uh, like what kind of like interesting mechanics can we use with smart contracts around like creating an art based economy? Because he previously created a project that was called Spam, S-P-A-M, like Spam Mail, where basically he was manually like people could send NFTs to this wallet. Then he was manually like distributing an ERC 20 that like, you know, he minted through some, some interface. Uh, and he, it started off being like, Hey, can we just like automate this? Can you just like make it? So when someone sends an, an NFT, like it automatically gives them tokens. I was like, yeah, but like we can do more interesting stuff than that. So that's kind of how the idea for rats was, was born. And it is yeah an experiment in an art-based economy. The idea being is that you can deposit any like whitelisted ERC seven twenty one or ERC one one five five. We whitelist by contract, not by like token ID. So like you could deposit any rareable asset, any Zora uh, asset, any foundation asset to this contract, and then it gets put into the vault, and then uh, you can receive a Rats token for your contribution, 
or you can choose to just take something out of the vault. So you give a piece of art and then you can get a rats token, which would later allow you to claim a piece of art in the future, or you just swap it out for any other piece of um, art in the vault. And then there was like a hard-coded limit of a thousand rats tokens um, that would ever exist. So once there were like a thousand pieces in the vault, you could no longer, you know, mint new rats tokens. You could only, you know, swap art for, for other art. And it's just like a bit of like smart contract as performance art, like um, kind of a exploration of this like, retro aesthetic with this um like trash art uh movement um that was just like really fun to see play out absolutely and it's just cool to see people just having fun with ethereum not just trying to make things that are going to be sort of financially incredible or whatever it's just it, it feels more like something like i used to hang out at uh RISD in, in rhode island mm, design mm -hmm, school mm -hmm. feels like something you might see like i know they have this uh this shop second life where you can like trade in your unused art supplies mm. and, and get credits mm -hmm. at the store to get other art supplies feels like that kind of artistic bohemian space and the aesthetic of the website with the rat art and everything really like makes i actually i still have a rat's token um, oh, cool. I, I, I minted, <clears throat> this is like early in my journey, but I minted on, it's the only time I've ever minted on Rarible. I minted a, <laughs> yeah. which was very expensive. I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was not the right choice for this, uh, this endeavor. In any case, I minted a screenshot of, uh, a picture of a cat I had taken and a screenshot of it in the photos app on my phone and minted it. And cause I wasn't yeah. yet sure, do I want to mint my face to the blockchain? I, I mm -hmm. still, still not sure actually. Uh, yeah. although I guess there's not that much on it. You could do, you could do the call data hacking stuff, but it would be tough to actually put your face on the blockchain. I wonder if anybody yeah. has, has properly done it with on chain something. It'd be interesting. <laughs> Uh, but so, yeah, so I have a rats token, so I've yet to, I have to go grab one from there. I saw there's also like a collab with FWB involved. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't quite take off as much as we expected. So we were like, rats is really fun, but it's also very, it's like very kind of like chaotic because when we first launched rats, you know, somebody was just like uploading a ton of photos of like weed. They're just like stock photos that they found and just like, like hoarding rats tokens. And we're like, Thing. Like we love that this is open, but like somebody's just like minting a bunch of low quality stuff and just hoarding rats tokens. Like, and actually, what we ended up doing, we just added like we just kind of like spoke about like how we weren't like super pleased with that particular actor. Like, we were cool with basically like do whatever you know the hell you want, but like that just felt like a little bit kind of like not playing like kind of in good faith with like the game we were doing. So we kind of like just added a uh, like uh, when you were doing a deposit, we added a warning being like please just like sign this message uh, confirming that like this is a unique piece of artwork that you created and um, like it's some novel thing that like you have the rights to. And like that stopped his behavior just by like having to sign and you know, a message like with that, um, with his wallet or his or her wallet. And then um, they ended up actually just like giving the wraps token back to the contract as well. So that was just like a nice little social deterrent that, that stopped that behavior. But anyway, going back to the, the friends with art collab, we were like, okay, this is cool. But like, what if we had more focused vaults that were just for like groups of friends or squads where there's like at least some sort of barrier about who can like trade in and out of it. And that's where we did the collab with FWB where we basically just forked the contract and added like a token requirement of having 60 FWB tokens. Um, and then we created that vault that was called friends with art, um, which is still around today. I bet rats would be a success on polygon. I feel like people would mess with it there. Maybe some slightly different yeah, tokenomics somebody, to handle the scale that you could get. Uh, there could be something interesting. Yeah, so somebody actually just uh, DM'd me about that literally today or mentioned me on Twitter. Oh, so I think there's definitely like an appetite for it. I think that one of the challenges with rats is that like 
we rely on this like on ERC 721 or like uh, like received like callback behavior in which you need to trust that the contracts that are getting deposited like are playing by the rules of like right. um, kind of being honest in their interactions with that. So every kind of new contract needs to be added to this like allow list by an admin. Um, so like, you know, you can deposit any rareable piece, any, you know, super rare piece, any Azora piece or whatever. Uh, but a lot of people have their own contracts and it's kind of gas heavy and just like a logistical pain to kind of like be manually adding new contracts to this allow list. Um, and I would imagine you'd run into the same same problem on Polygon. So I think if you had like a dedicated person, especially with minimal gas cost, um, who'd be willing to like, you know, do a rough review of the contract to make sure it's not malicious and continue adding it to the allow list and then deployed it on on Polygon. Like I think people would probably have a lot of fun with it. Absolutely. You know, I know uh, when you were doing it, you were, uh, at least when we were talking about it, you were primarily uh, whitelisting or allow listing contracts that were also verified on Etherscan, uh, which like excluded OpenSea. But I feel as much as it's not as cool for not being verified, OpenSea on Polygon plus Rats Art, I think people would totally use that even if it was just that one, yeah. one marketplace or one major. Yeah, so I, I mean, like, yeah, so like everyone was always asking us to add to the allow list, like, you know, the shared OpenSea uh, contract. But, you know, just as a matter of principle, I'm like, I can't read the code to like, I, yeah. it's be extremely unlikely that they would have anything malicious with that. Like, you know, on ERC 721 receive callback, for example, but I'm like, I can't read this code. And it's kind of like a, a principle of mine to be able to read the code and just do a quick scan to make sure, you know, this contract makes sense. It's going to act as I would expect with this callback. And I can't do that. So I'm not adding it to the allow list. And that unfortunately excluded a lot of art and also just like added too, I think you share this, like my kind of frustration with OpenSea not not verifying that particular contract, but that's the way I chose to do things. Yeah, absolutely. It's silly. They might as well verify it. It's, if there is a vulnerability, someone has decompiled it and would have figured it out by now. So what's mm -hmm. the only danger is that the code just isn't very nice. Or maybe in order to yeah. verify it, they'd have to reveal comments in the original file that mm -hmm. they don't want to verify. I, I wonder mm -hmm. what the reasoning mm -hmm. is, but it's I, I, what's strange is that there's, you would think that OpenSea would have just bought somebody in order to have a better minting contract by now. It's not that complicated to do something better than what they're currently doing. It's it's strange a little bit. Mm -hmm. What is the on ERC721 received? What's the vulnerability if they're implementing a malicious version of that? It's supposed to execute a callback or what's the like vulnerability specifically? Yeah, so basically like um, I don't have it in front of me to like go into all the details, but like high level, you just basically trust that like the 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 ERC seven twenty one only calls that like uh function like when it is successfully sending an NFT to a contract and like hypothetically you could write a Solidity contract that just like calls that a thousand times to like mint you know a thousand tokens or whatever right so it's just like do you trust does the the ERC seven twenty one that you're receiving like only call that when it's actually transferring it to you um, I believe that that was the idea of it um, although like obviously you could you know check to ensure to see if that uh, token ID is in your uh, possession. Uh, but again, also like you could have a contract that mints things that aren't actually artwork that just like sends them in bulk to the contract just to, to mine tokens as well. So again, just kind of like, is this like, are there definitely images associated with this NFT and is it like behaving well? And as I expect with like hitting up this callback, the nice thing about that though, is that like most NFT like contracts, like make you do two transactions. You need to like set an allowance to the contract and then you need to like execute a transaction to do the transfer like now that you've given the allowance right. but like this callback just allows you to do like what i believe is a safe transfer from and then append like arbitrary call data at the ends that like the receiving um contract can decode so basically when you 
trade with rats.art, you send it an NFT, but then you in the transfer method, you actually encode call data that say, do I want to receive a token or do I want to swap this with art for art? Oh, I if see, I want to swap this for art, is this a 721 that I want to swap for or is it a 1155? What's the contract address and what's the token ID? So then the rats.art contract is like, okay, when I receive an NFT, I look at the call data and I figure out what action to take, whether it's swap art, swap 721, swap 1155 or mint a token to them. Got it. I see. So this is a like uh, I'm hoping to one day talk to the 721 co-authors, and this seems like something where the, I noticed it also in the um, <clears throat> like approvals for an NFT contract are for an NFT mm-hmm. for an NFT are revoked during transfer if they're implemented to be revoked during transfer. But we have to depend mm-hmm. on this, mm-hmm. and someone could make a mistake and not revoke those approvals in their NFT contract. And so if you were to, for instance, give you know a start listing on OpenSea. Mm. after transfer that address could still be allowed to list uh the same token even mm. though they no longer mm-hmm. own it if if it's not implemented there seems to be something about and i'm not uh maybe you have ideas about this like there's something about this erc i stand like way of doing things where we're dependent on implementations of interfaces but we can't be sure that they actually follow through mm. i feel like computer science must have already figured out the answer to this <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I I hear you. Um, yeah, I think that, yeah, the off-chain orders for OpenSea are yeah really great, but again, yeah, there are those vulnerabilities um, that we talked about with like you know the surfacing of orders and whatnot. Um, I think just going back a little bit to like the OpenSea and on-chain or off-chain like infrastructure, I think that even though like there's so much capital efficiency and like zero gas cost to these off-chain orders once you have the allowances set. I think it is really interesting, some of these on-chain marketplaces that are now emerging, like on layer twos, like the one that I'm thinking about is the treasure marketplace that's like, has the magic token associated with it. I don't know if you've- I've seen it, of, but um, tell me thought, what, what, what's interesting about it. Yeah, I mean, they basically have treasure. If you, it's like, if you go to treasure.lol and go to their marketplace, they basically have like a marketplace which kind of like rivals OpenSea's kind of like an OpenSea style interface, but- Everything is denominated in this magic, native magic token instead of ETH. Uh, but the all of the chain, all of the orders are on chain, which like you know has all these drawbacks that we've spoken about. But it's on Arbitrum, where it's a lot cheaper to you know post or uh, like you know send out new orders or cancel orders, um, etc. So it's still a gas cost, but it's much smaller than Ethereum. And then when I was actually writing some smart contracts that interacted with this um, marketplace on Arbitrum, like it was actually really empowering to know that like I no longer need to rely on this like centralized OpenSea database and the centralized OpenSea API to like uh, get all the orders that are that exist out there. Like I can just write my own indexer. I can watch the blockchain for events and I can know that everyone has equal access to all of these orders. So as much as I don't like the gas cost to on-chain orders, I think when you have on-chain orders on a cheap blockchain, there's something really empowering to knowing that everyone kind of has an equal playing grounds, you know, for the most part, uh, to be interacting with these orders. On a product level, I, I, I only poked around it a little bit, but the treasure marketplace, it's also only certain contracts that are available, right? Then It's not any NFT. They're sort of doing a Correct, curated yeah. marketplace, yeah. 
yeah, but there is, they've been hinting that they're going to have a more open marketplace coming soon. But like, there aren't even that many meaningful other NFTs other than ones that other than the ones that they support on Arbitrum right now. Uh, but we that that could change in the future. That's it. Let's date the show. Uh, if you go to Arbiscan right now, <laughs> the blocks are empty. There's nothing going on on Arbitrum. Not much. When I whenever I've checked Arbiscan, uh, there's all, only ever like one transaction per block, sort of the minimum. It's very rare. In your experience, have you seen spikes of activity there? I mean, I've only done a handful of transactions on there, so I can't speak to that. What I think is uh, like a kind of more, a little bit, at least something that is more uh, kind of relevant to me is like looking at the non-fungible token tracker on Arbitrum, for example, and looking at the ERC-721 top tokens. This could potentially be like a source of alpha to like identify new um, NFT projects, like just based on the number, like you can kind of, the number of transfers that they have could be approx- like you know, approximate like maybe the number of sales, even though not all mm. transfers are sales. And this is where you can kind of keep an eye to see like, okay, is it really just this treasure ecosystem, which are all these NFTs that are listed, like started off with the word small, like S-M-O-L, um, or are there other new NFTs that are kind of emerging in this ecosystem? So I think that like using Etherscan or Arbiscan, et cetera, um, like can be, there. it's really nice to have aggregation layers on top of it, like with what Nansen does and like other analytics platforms, but especially for like emerging blockchains like Arbitrum, which might not have integrations in those existing like data analytics. It is always interesting to just kind of poke through these like top ERC-721 um, transfers. And then also um, someone I know wrote a bot just to identify like based on Etherscan's recently verified contracts, like checking all the verified contracts, see if they adhere to the 721 standard, and then just kind of sending a telegram alert like um, about all the new ones that are deployed. There's been so much NFT activity that it's just there's too much noise and not enough signal in that feed. But there was a while there in kind of early NFT days where like that could be a really interesting source of alpha just to be like, what are all the freaking 721s that are getting deployed to Ethereum? And then even if you can't find them on Twitter, just manually hitting up the token URI function and like, uh, looking at the metadata and looking at the images and getting a sense of what was going on like before a lot of the public knew about it. Totally. Uh, I have something similar set up with Dom's wallet for contract employees, which was pretty great until corruptions when most of the contracts mm. are not minting contracts. I guess I could be yep. a little bit smarter about narrowing it down to only ones that have minting functions, but I was being kind of lazy. I was using the Nansen uh, alert bot. Mm-hmm. Discord. Mm-hmm. It's useful cool. anyway. Uh, but wh- where are you finding those top ERC-721s on Arbitrum? Is that something on Arbiscan? Yeah, it's on Arbiscan. In the top right, if you go to um, to the left of like sign in and miscellaneous, there's like a token section, and then you can go ERC seven twenty one top tokens, and then it gives you like a list of all the seven twenty ones like ordered by the number of transfers in the last twenty four hours. Have you seen the thing on Etherscan that's been around for like two years, where you can look at seven twenty one collections with the art on? It's like their NFT token tracker page, uh, but. I've, I, almost nobody knows that it exists, but for years you've been able to like view essentially what you can see on OpenSea through Etherscan. Have you ever, have you ever seen that? I feel like I saw that once, but I haven't revisited it in a super, super long time. Honestly, I don't know where it is. I couldn't tell you how to get there, but it's, <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, Rats, February 9th, 2021. Fast forward a little bit. April 19th, 2021, solvency.art. Um, who is Ezra, first of all? Yeah, Ezra Miller, yeah, is my home in New York. He's a pretty, like, established um, artist that has been kind of, like, working on this, like, generative WebGL art for, like, the, the majority of his, his career. Uh, really talented guy. Um, and Solvency is, like, an art block style drop where, like, 
every piece that was created was like generated via a pseudo random hash, like from uh, on chain. And then that pseudo random hash was fed into his art script that then generated the piece. So this is kind of like the, the art block style minting that everyone knows and loves. And basically the way that this happened is I got in touch with Ezra through a connection through, through a friend and he, he, his, his native, art format was digital. He wasn't like, you know, a painter that was trying to get into NFTs. Like he was like a digital generative, like code-based artist. And he had minted on Zora, but he felt like he made these infinite pieces of artwork and to post them on Zora or foundation or wherever, like he would basically just have to take like a high quality video for like three minutes. That was like a ginormous file size, like uploaded. And that was the art piece. And he felt really constrained by that because he's like, my native art form is digital. These are infinite pieces that are uh, made to be seen like in the browser with the code running. And I need to transform it into this like, um, you know, video that has a limited length. And it's just like, you know, me recording it for somebody else. It's not people experiencing the true infinite art form with the code running live. So we were just kind of exploring on how to make that happen for him. And that's kind of how we ended up creating Solvency. It's super beautiful. So solvency.art, if you're listening, also, I noticed a little bit of alpha. I wanted to ask you, you so you can click on them uh, to see them rendered real time. WebGL two, uh, actually, what's the difference between WebGL one and two? What do you know the advantage here? That's a question for Ezra. All right, I'll, I'll have to invite Ezra onto WebGL Galaxy Brain. So um, <laughs> you can interact with them though. Like, so if you go on OpenSea, you see like a sort of clip of the sort of uh, mm-hmm. dead fish version in Brad Trammell, uh, not Brad yeah. Trammell, um, uh, Brad Victor. <laughs> Brett Victor, who I do you know? Do you know Brett Victor? You familiar? I don't. I, I don't know the reference. Yeah, he's like a UX Apple UX guy. Did Dynamic Land mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. San Francisco? Like um, the future of the library is a computer. Oh, anyway. cool. He has this uh, somewhat uh, popular talk about um, we haven't yet reached the computer age because we're just like people think like sharing PSD files is like high tech or mm-hmm. whatever, but they're not dynamic mm-hmm. simulations. They're not which mm, this is much mm-hmm. closer to because you can actually click on the work and have a little mm-hmm. bit of interaction and it's being as proof, I guess, that it's uh, rendering real time. I want to know, are there any other, uh, I know I saw space bars like full screen, I think. Are there any other uh, keyboard uh, alpha tips for exploring solvency? No, you, you found the Easter egg. Like the, the <laughs> click and drag is, 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 the, is the Easter egg. You, you have discovered it, yeah. So um, It's really beautiful when you do it. Yeah, and, and again, like it's so dope that these are infinite. You can literally let this run forever. Like it will, it will keep going. So like that's that's the beauty of this being like, um, you know, being this bespoke custom thing instead of trying to fit his art form into you know the static Zora or Foundation Mint, where you know you're just limited to a video or a JPEG or or whatever. So as we've seen like play out, like um, I think just more and more people are going to like appreciate these more kind of like novel smart contracts that that do things that are like kind of like only possible with this blockchain technology, like, you know, using the pseudo random hash on chain to like generate, generate a generative piece of art that like nobody, you know, Ezra did a bunch of testnet mints and we had an idea of like what this like total collection will look like, but it wasn't until people actually minted them that like actually the minting, you know, created the work. And we didn't know like with photo, for example, is like a very rare texture. So we didn't know like, Will there be two photo pieces or will there be zero or, or will there be one? Like, you know, we couldn't predict that. It was all just based on what pseudo random hashes were generated on chain. Uh, it's It was a really, really fun mint day, like over the course of 12 hours 
of just like watching this series like actually come to life and none of these pieces would exist in the same way if like there you know was a diff for example like to generate the pseudo random hash like we pulled them out of usdc and like the eth usdc like contract on uniswap so like if trading activity was different you know mint number 410 would look different than it does right now or if it landed a block before or a block after so um really beautiful to think about that like each one of these uh mints is like uniquely enabled by blockchain technology and like exists the way it does because of a variety of on-chain um, conditions that existed at the time that that transaction confirmed. I think these kinds of collections where the minter, the collector plays a role in the specific creation of that artwork and the artist couldn't possibly have known what that, that series of coincidences would lead to. I think it creates like mm -hmm. a stronger connection with the, the person who minted it because they really did play a co-creative role in deciding them and I don't know, USDC maybe feels warm in its heart or something, but <laughs> it's uh, actually, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, so the, the minting function. So when you go to mint, it writes a pseudo random hash to a mapping of token IDs, for, uh, mapping from token ID to hash. Um, and mm -hmm. the way that it does that, I, I looked it up. It's uh, ABI encode packed. And then you've got a bunch of, you're pulling a bunch of things here. So message sender, transaction mm -hmm. gas price, last minted ID, block number, mm -hmm. block timestamp, block hash, uh, lock number minus one. I'm not sure exactly what that is. The, uh, some Oracle token in this case, you chose USDC, but it's actually modular. You could change what the token is. Uh, it's balance, right. the balance of a certain account, uh, which I guess was mm -hmm. a large account or something or. Yeah. So I think that that, that was, so this was like the balance. I believe this was the balance of USDC in the ETH USDC Uniswap V. Right. I believe. Uh, so it's like, it's, I guess, hypothetically, it's, it is possible to game. You'd have to figure it out very quickly because the thing minted out pretty fast, but, um, I guess you could maybe flashbot that, uh, USDC. You'd have to get a lot of different things right in order to, to bot this. And then also you would have to figure out like from, you know, this is like a big JavaScript file that like generates the piece of artwork and there is code in there. That's like, okay, given the hash, like kind of like what are the the attributes but like you would have to from the time that the mint opened you would have to like frantically like try to understand the javascript code that like determined what hash would like affect like what rarity characteristic that you were looking for and then put all like get all these different factors right like um in this big abi abi.encode packed function to like make that happen so maybe technically possible, but like in reality, like very unlikely to happen. It's a job for Anish. Actually, we should go look at Anish's solvencies just to make sure <laughs> that he didn't do anything. <laughs> but even if you were, if you were to do that, you'd almost deserve it if you, if you figured all that out and managed yeah. to get <laughs> Good on you. Like, cause that's, that'd be a pretty, you know, that'd be a heroic event. Right. And, but like the Seriously. alternative would be like doing, you know, a chain link, like VRF Oracle, which like you have to acquire link. And then it's like kind of an asynchronous callback. And like, it's a, it's a whole thing. Right. So, um, this felt, you know, I'm into not being perfect, but being pragmatic. And I think this, this kind of solution speaks to that. Yeah. I think, I think it was, there's 500 tokens it minted out and you said something like 12 hours. I think, uh, I would be very surprised if and, anybody. And, and it's like a bunch of, it's a bunch of wild, like minified JavaScript <laughs> to like figure out even how to map a particular hash to a particular rarity attribute, which like, yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of different things that would have to go there. So yeah, um, we'll, we'll, we'll watch it. Yeah. There will be a future drop by Ezra. 
um, and we'll have to keep a close eye on Anisha's account for sure. That's what I'm saying. But what if you had just packed one other similar like quantity of USD, you know, quantity of dye in the ETH dye pool or something? Would it have made it uh, significantly harder, or would someone who had figured out how to game the first one be able to do it, no matter how many additional uh, sort of on-chain balances you were to pack? I guess it would make it harder a little bit. A little bit harder, but still within the realm of possibility. It's just a matter of, yeah, like how how crazy do you want to to get with it? Um, so I'd be interested to know the overlap of like, you know, Flashbot, like specialists with like nerds who care enough about this drop um, with people who could like, you know, figure out the mapping of the the minified JavaScript. Like th- those are unique people who I would, I would love to uh, have a conversation. That's who you want to be talking to with your solidity, right? That's the ultimate audience for an NFT creator. Yeah, I mean, that's just such a deep cut, right? It's like, look at all the things that you had to do to acquire this like piece of artwork too, which is like not even necessarily like a, a widely mainstream collection, right? So yeah, I'd be happy to speak to that person. I, I Well, I think uh, I, I'm not skilled enough to be the one to do this, but I think capture the flags where you're uh, minting the rarest traits of the NFT, you know, essentially an NFT collection mm-hmm. where rarity is dependent on how much effort you put into cracking the contract. Uh, would be a collection. I mean, I don't know if those people are actually the kinds of people you want owning the token in terms of if you're interested in the floor price of the token, but it would certainly be pretty cool to see like, oh, only the most elite hackers are able to get the mm. the golden manny or whatever. I mean, that's honestly a cool idea, right? It's like, it's a way to be like, okay, you can only get the really dopest version of this NFT if you like in a relatively short amount of time are the first person to, you know, jump through all of these like, kind of like uh hoops that like takes a true you know solidity nerd slash flash bot nerd to actually pull off like yeah only the latest hackers um get in it is kind of interesting i think like i think that this speaks a little bit to what happened um with loot that it's like really interesting to like think about distribution mechanisms that have some sort of barrier to them so like with uh when loot came out like it was still you know not everybody knows how to mint from Etherscan and like not everyone was like as hyped about Dom's Dom's work at the time. Right. So the people who acquired those loot tokens or who were people who like knew Dom, people who knew how to interact with Etherscan and were like willing to spend some gas on something experimental. I think that's what's kind of helped kicked off, kick off the loot community because the, the holders like met some sort of kind of like uh, nerd criteria that uh, like allowed them to acquire the pieces. So I think playing with that more about like kind of, distribution through like a little bit of challenging technical skills needed to acquire the pieces like could actually form pretty interesting uh communities by getting the tokens in like kind of builders hands like just through the distribution mechanism absolutely like if builders are essential to a community having some kind of longevity through future derivative and experience development attracting those people Mm -hmm. through the mid process makes a lot i was actually thinking in a similar sort of vein like it's a shame Twitter just came out with their hexagon PFP thing. Mm-hmm. I think it should have been that you have to hold a Twitter NFT in order to get the hexagon hexagon mm-hmm. feature rather than, mm-hmm. and they're already going to be doing the wallet authentication. So there's no, no extra, you know, no challenge for them mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. So the hashes are generated through this mint, uh, which relies on this pseudorandom uh, hash function. And then, so you've got the hashes on chain associated with the token IDs, but we still don't, or it's only going to be in the front end that, they're going to be generating the uh, WebGL artwork, right? Like, how do you manage to get it? I, I know there was also like an Arweave tie-in, and and they're also they are also viewable on OpenSea. So, how does it get all glued together? Yeah, great question. So basically, we have this um, attribute on the contract called Arweave ID. Um, you can see that, that that's set on EtherScan right now, um, and. The idea is that like this entire 
generative art script is stored on Arweave at the location that is, um, you know, on the contract right now. So you can go on Arweave, like go to this, uh, you know, 6QM, capital WC, et cetera, et cetera, like identifier, look up that identifier. And that, that has like this bundled version of the art. And then you can basically through what I believe is a query parameter, like send in an arbitrary hash for it to render. So even if solvency.art like went down, um, you could always go to the R, you could always go to Arweave, um, and then you could send in the hash. You could you could grab the hash from the contract because, like you said, um, you know there's a mapping of token ID to you know pseudo random hash. So you would just grab the hash from the contract, send it in as a query parameter to uh, the art code that you would grab from Arweave, and then you would be able to see your piece. And then all the images that it's loading. Uh, in that version that's bundled up on Arweave are also stored on Arweave. So base, so it kind of allows for, you know, quote unquote, permanent storage, as long as like Arweave is still around, that these pieces will always be accepted. So that's kind of like the, like, you know, blockchain histor- like historian kind of like um, way of like preserving the, the piece as long as we can. Um, but practically, you need to have an easy integration for, for OpenSea to be able to understand this piece. And like, this web, this was before I think even animation URL was an attribute surface, like through the token metadata, like it was only images and, and videos. And, but even animation URL, I think the script is too heavy to really support that inline in OpenSea. Yeah, um, and probably. also like, I think it'd be ashamed to kind of view this like very beautiful big piece and such like a little, like, uh, you know, rectangle or square that OpenSea allows. So, um, but we wanted an easy representation of this for people to see in their mobile wallets on OpenSea. So, Basically, we had a background job running uh, that would look for um, every new mint that occurred, like look at the ID and look at the token hash, like from the on-chain event. And then we had these like uh, machines that had high-quality GPUs running that would uh, like open up Puppeteer, like a like a you know a code-controlled version of Chrome, like let the artwork uh, run, and then like take a video of it for ten seconds, and then grab that video. Um, uh, you know, upload the video and then mark that in the database that the video has been uploaded as well as take a screenshot. So then when you hit up our, uh, like the metadata URI, like solvency.art slash API slash whatever your token ID is, it would basically be like, has this background job finished rendering this artwork? If it has, then surface um, this like video and this image uh, that represents the artwork. Um, that was you know, generated through this like automated background worker that was um, generating these kind of like high quality views of it that people could see and open see. I love how insanely complicated this project is to pull off a GPU farm just to get the rendering happening in real time. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really interesting because like I'm an early Artblocks user, like I'm an official like advisor to Artblocks. I've I've been um, you know working closely with Snowfro like since since they launched on Mainnet, and when we were doing this project, we we had a lot of conversations about like we we really took a hard look at evaluating with Snowfro too like is this an Artblocks project can this be done on Artblocks because they already had all the infrastructure to do this right like they have the background well they have some of the infrastructure to do this for certain types of pieces where like they already had the code to run these background workers take the screenshots surface the data to OpenSea um, etc but what it came down to is that like they wanted everything to be stored on the Ethereum chain uh, blockchain. So like they want to keep it pure and like not have these, but we had so many assets, like all of these big uh, photographs and like a huge amount of JavaScript that just literally wouldn't fit on the Ethereum chain. It wasn't practical to do it. So because we had to store stuff on our weave, like it wasn't a good fit for our flocks, but also we wanted 
complete control over everything, right? We wanted to be like, hey, when we render these video previews, we want to make sure they're done on good machines and we want to control all that code. We don't want to defer that to an external company, right? So we decided to take everything in house and we basically, you know, over the course of, it was like two months that we were working on it, but like just like a handful of weeks towards the end that I was really kind of like full time on it, where we just basically had to rebuild a lot of infrastructure that Artblocks already had, but we had to build it from scratch for ourselves just to support this one project. Um, so I think that that gave us a lot of superpowers to really tightly control all the different aspects from the front end that you're browsing to the minting experience to, to the preview renders that were really important to us and pretty hard to get right. Um, and I think it really kind of gave um, a lot of uh, power um, and beauty to the project as well that I think people recognize. Yeah, definitely. It's it's uh, one of the most recognizable, beautiful projects from that era. And it's it's really cool to see all the bespoke stuff. So on the token, I, token URI, you're uh, using the classic concatenation of like a base URI and then token ID mm-hmm. because you're able to do the, you know, HTTP solvency.art slash API slash yeah. and then token ID. Um, but if I were to hit up the Arwe version, I'm really directly hitting up the JavaScript that generates the, like, I'm not going to get the metadata back. Is that right? I'm going to get the, uh, the render, the WebGL, but not the metadata that something like OpenSea would need. Is, is that how it works? Yeah, exactly. Um, like the, the Arweave is purely just rendering the artwork and like technically you could expect the JavaScript variables and like get the, um, oh, right. like get the actual attributes. Um, but it's just for, just for rendering the piece. So I think. The base URI is um, like updatable by the owner of the contract who who is Ezra. So like the idea being like if he and you know it might be actually time to do this. Um, uh, you know this is really at Ezra's discretion. You can change the base URI, but then you can also lock the base URI I to say that, like yeah. I'm never going to change this again for it to be permanent, right? So the idea being that like we'll use solvency.art slash API slash whatever ID like while we're running the background workers, like until it mints out and like until, and until we generate all the thumbnails, but now, now like those attributes and like those thumbnails, like are, are static. So we can, we could, and you know, I should speak to Ezra about when he wants to do this, we could basically take all, all of that metadata um, and all of those images, like put it all on our weave and then just change the base URI to be like our weave identifier. So that like that metadata, uh, you don't have to rely like on an HTTP server, all of that metadata could just be on our weave. And then if he so choose, chose to, he could choose to lock that to ensure that it would like never be changed. It's very cool. Once the API is sort of settled, you could just write the whole thing to our weave and walk away. Exactly. But you need that interim, like where you are rendering from your own backend, because like you want to be showing people like previews as their render, even before it's minted out or like before the background job finishes all the jobs. Absolutely. I wonder, I guess you're safe because OpenSea and other people are going to be, other marketplaces, et cetera, are going to be in, doing caching, indexing. But I wonder what Arweave's response time is like. I wonder if it's... Uh... Well, so, something that when I was developing, again, this was like before, you know, animation URL was like, like prominent on OpenSea. And this was actually before OpenSea supported like the AR colon slash slash prefix to um, uh, yeah. indicate that something's an Arweave asset. So I was doing another project and I'm like, I really like Arweave, but I don't like that. Like I need to hard code a specific Arweave gateway, which was yeah. like, sure, it's the public Arweave gateway that is supported by their team. But like, it's much nicer to like it was only IPFS at the time to be like IPFS colon slash slash means just use defer to any gateway iterate through gateway. It's like, I don't care. Just know that this is the IPFS identifier. And when I did solvency at the time, this was before they had the AR colon slash slash prefix. So 
if you wanted to, you know, serve something from Arweave, you would have to specify an explicit Arweave gateway, which I wasn't a big fan of. I feel like it, you know, kind of um, throws away a little bit of, of the power, um, you know, of it being decentralized. This is the same. This is like a really subtle thing. I feel like OpenSea really greases the wheels for a lot of the NFT marketplace. <clears throat> and it's it's really not necessary long term, but uh, I, I like OpenSea. I think it does it does good work, even though I have some reservations about it. But one of the things that I think is more controversial and under discussed, I talked about it a little bit with Ian when he talked to me a little bit about Solidity and stuff. Uniswap was the one who pushed through Base sixty four as the token URI, and if it weren't for somebody mm-hmm. like Uniswap pushing their weight around. OpenSea wouldn't have adopted it similar to the AR colon slash slash. And this is something where like, yeah, token governance, whatever, everybody wants revenue share on that 2.5%, whatever. But actually what's more right. important for the the tech is mm. that we be able to not, I don't particularly want to democratically vote on it, but if someone has a cool idea right. and it requires that you read token URIs that don't look like prior token yep. URIs, it's a, it's a shame that we all just have to imitate what OpenSea does. 100%. I think that's actually a really, really excellent point. Like, I think that's, that's a great thing um, for people to know about. Um, and uh, two notes on that, um, that for me, as you were speaking, it's like Uniswap V3 is epic. Like they yes. introduce not only like really novel, like liquidity positions that you can take, like these concentrated liquidity positions, which is just like a technical marvel. And then they're like, let's also make these on-chain SVGs that are dynamic and really, really dope. And like Pioneer, they have the base 64, like encoded, like on-chain SVG, like they really went above and beyond. And um, I give them a huge amount of credit for that. Absolutely. The V3 NFTs are chef's kiss. Like, wow, they really didn't have to do that. And they did. Although there was a brief period where I think some people didn't understand that they were actually like like the real position themselves and oh, they no. thought they were just collectibles that weren't related and they sold off like some expensive uh, LP positions for not a lot of money. But yeah, there's always there's always dangers in this crypto world uh, that you gotta look out for. But on, on OpenSea, it's like there's this whole trend of, you know, OpenSea competitors and every every anytime there's any issue with OpenSea, everybody wants to spin up their OpenSea provider or, you know, talk crap on them or you know, insist that like they are not great because they have all this money, but like this specific feature request isn't done. But I have a lot of respect and admiration for OpenSea. I mean, these these founders were around during like when nobody really cared about absolutely. They were they were grinding for a long time, and when like nobody would take them seriously or like take the NFT ecosystem as a whole seriously. Like they are OGs that have been around for a long time. And like, there's a lot of infrastructure that people don't appreciate if they haven't been software engineers at you know scale uh, organizations that have to scale. Like, they support a huge amount of traffic, and they're scaling Django servers, like, uh, and dealing with a huge amount of off-chain orders and on-chain validation. And they generally do a good job, and they've been around since the the beginning. And I think people underestimate what it takes to operationally, like even just keep the OpenSea website up and people think that they can, you know, build it in a weekend, like a hackathon and and compete, um, not just on like scalability and reliability, but also on, you know, network effects and um, like smart contracts, et cetera, I think are like um, a bit, a bit naive, not to say there, there are not going to be competitors that, you know, gain market share, not to, not to say that they're going to be the only game in town forever, I think um, I have some kind of like theories on that, uh, but I, I just want to say shout out OpenSea. People uh, talk crap on them too much. Absolutely, yeah, and I I know uh, Devin and Alex a little bit, um, Devin a little bit better, and uh, you know you're 100 percent right. They've been grinding. People didn't care. They didn't do something like create their own token. Actually, 
mm-hmm. uh, they, they don't require you to use OpenSea token to make purchases in their marketplace. And that's probably got yeah. a lot to do with their success. Not that it won't work for Treasure yeah. on, on Arbitrum, but it is nice that, yeah. you know, it's a pretty, it, it is a pretty good UX. Like everybody who complains about it really has not experienced the full on-chain. If, it, if everything was on-chain, it just wouldn't be the same wouldn't be the same mm-hmm. vibe. So they, they do a lot of great stuff also in that kind of the layer that people don't want to do, which is web two DevOps mm-hmm. server uptime yeah. kind of stuff. And also all the downtime, I heard someone say the other day that they they've been down a hundred percent of the like days of the year or something. I don't know if that's true, but um, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, nobody talks about the Twitter fail whale anymore. I, I don't really, mm-hmm. I'm not worried about mm-hmm. OpenSea's network effect. I think they're going to do just fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this also kind of like leads me to something that I've been thinking about too, is like we've seen with uh, ERC-20s with like um, regular token transfer, regular token sales and DEXs is that there used to be that you would go to one particular marketplace to do your trading. Like maybe you'd log on to Uniswap or, you know, EtherDelta back in the day or uh, whatever to, to do your trading. But now I think a lot of the people that do a lot of trading um, and want to get the best prices use aggregators like one inch and like, and I'm really keeping a close eye on and really fascinated about this idea of these NFT like liquidity aggregators like uh, genie and gem.xyz, totally. because I think we're going to see something similar happen in NFTs where even though OpenSea is the biggest uh, marketplace, like, like, you know, with looks rare and like other marketplaces coming up on the scene, like, there is liquidity fragmentation that's happening where if you want to buy a CryptoPunk or Ford Ape or whatever, it is really advantageous to know all of the orders from all different marketplaces. And to date, most of the competitors to OpenSea have basically offered the same functionality, but with looks rare, they started offering, and I know some other protocols are going to introduce this soon too, collection-based offers. So you're like, I can make an offer that like, I'll, I'm willing to pay 50 ETH for any board ape, not right. just, you know, board ape one, two, three. Almost right? NFTX so, like, style. Yeah, exactly. NFTX style. And NFTX has liquidity too, right? Which surfaces through these aggregators. So I am really, uh, I think that like, it's not that like we're going to see somebody come and just provide the same functionality to OpenSea like with a token around it and like it's going to take the market share and like everyone's going to go to that new place. I think we're going to see more novel sorts of liquidity, whether that be NFTX style, whether that be collection based orders, whether like what Owen's doing with like the new pseudo swap stuff. Yeah, very um, interesting. Are, we're going to see a lot. Yeah, we're going to see a lot more interesting experimentation with um, uh, liquidity and these uh, people are going to start going to these aggregators as opposed to individual places. Do you think NFT AMM makes sense? I, I'm not sure if it, I, I don't, I'm not sure that I understand why, <clears throat> I guess if I'm just trying to trade on the floor, I might as well be using an AMM. I think it's really hard. Like with ERC-20s, like you can, like with Uniswap, uh, you know, time, you know, uh, weighted oracles, like you can get on-chain oracles of like for like token prices and, you know, people use this on mainnet in production and it works because like there's enough volume, like an activity and like incentivized actors. Right. But for, for NFTs, like you, there's no like reliable on-chain Oracle for what a floor price is. Right. And like that you trade them in, in whole items for the most part, <clears throat> which are like kind of hard to design around. There's a lot of design challenges. So I don't feel like I have the answer or even like a super strong design on how to make a- NFT AMMs happen. I think NFTX is a really interesting um, approach that hasn't quite hit its stride yet. But, you know, I like the team a lot and, and kind of like experimentation. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. But it's it's super exciting, right? Because it feels like we've already seen this happen with ERC-20s, right? Where we saw 
you know, we saw order book style with zero X and ether Delta. And then we saw the AM Uniswap's AMM come and change the game. And now we see, you know, all these alternatives on the Uniswap balancer, or like, you know, these Dutch auctions or these like, you know, other ways to, to do the AMM model. And like, we're only seeing the beginning of that for NFTs. Um, and I think it's, I think it's going to be really, really exciting to see where you're to bring. Yeah, absolutely. I was pretty skeptical of the aggregator argument for usurping uh, OpenSea. And I, I don't think it will really do that. But one thing that I notice in my own behavior is, look, if I can get a cheaper gas transaction for the same action on Jam or on Genie, or maybe on PseudoSwap eventually, I don't know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to do it there. And, the, and also the interfaces of both of those uh, Genie and Jam feel much more responsive than OpenSea. So if they can like gas golf open C and provide a snappier feeling UI. And if it has reliable mm-hmm. data, I mean, it's not, it's not fundamentally different from open C in the sense that probably the majority of the th- things that I'm buying are coming from open C API list listings, but nevertheless, it, it's, uh, it is interesting. I, so far, I feel I haven't been touched so much by the liquidity that's available on NFTX or looks rare. I feel like NFTX, I'm a little bit behind the curve on and that there are real opportunities to use that and, and have a positive experience, but I don't feel like I'm missing that much from rareable, or looks rare yet. I think you're right. I don't think you're missing it yet, but I think like as you see these more novel again, I don't think it's like, oh, looks rare is gonna get a bunch of open sea style orders. I think that like looks rare and pseudo swap are gonna introduce these novel liquidity sources that right. will get more kind of activity over time. So I don't think the argument for like the liquidity sourcing from different liquidity sources is that compelling yet, but I think it will be. And I'm really excited to see how that evolves. And I also think just like buying items in bulk is like not something you could do in OpenSea. If you want to sweep the floor yeah. of a bunch of a low price collections, you don't want to do a bunch of transactions. That makes sense to me. So for those reasons, I think they're, they're pretty, they're pretty interesting. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to see how that space develops. Okay. So we've talked about uh, all the projects that come to mind that are sort of Steve Klebanoff projects, but we haven't talked about the one that is your, your hottest flame for the past while party Dow and party bid. <laughs> Actually, can you tell me a little bit like, so I guess, Maybe give a couple sentences on Party Bid. I'm sure everyone knows what it is. But what is it that you do working on Party Bid? And maybe are, are there any interesting mechanisms in Party Bid that Solidity engineers would find uh, interesting to learn about? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, Party Bid is a uh, DAP that allows people to buy NFTs as a group, um, either through auctions or through uh, through like Zora or Foundation auction, auctions. You can kind of participate as a squad and win those auctions, or you, now you can buy items um, directly from OpenSea as a squad, and upon purchasing them, they get uh, fractionalized uh, via fractional.art, um, and you can potentially uh, like share in the gains like um, if they're resold in the future. So that's, that's high level what Party Bid does right now, um, and the origin story of Party Bid um, is a long story, but high level, I think it's important uh, to just understand some takeaways, is that like, Party Bid was built by Party DAO, which was a DAO that was formed for the purpose of building software. And this is like the first flagship product that was built. It was uh, funded by like a 25 ETH uh, mirror crowdfund. That's and crazy. You guys all eating ramen or something? I, I, that part I don't understand. <laughs> when ETH, it, it's gone down since the ETH price uh, has uh, drawn down. But like uh, when the ETH was a bit higher, I remember the metric was about 500k in revenue that we had produced, um, which you know we used to to fund development. So it's taken fee- a big thing that I think is cool about PartyDAO is that like it took fees from the very beginning, yeah. and they were reasonable fees for providing a helpful service, and that that then funded future development. It's like a five percent or something like that. 
but now it's half in the project token and half exactly. in the okay so the, so yeah so it goes to fractional yeah, and then uh 2.5 of the fractional is uh handed over to the party dow and then 2.5 yeah. percent on top of the winning bid i guess yeah so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on i will say that like anna um is the solidity dev for party dow like i've largely worked on the front end and like helped with the architecture and the reviewing of solidity but she's really the the master behind it all um and I think she'd be the best person to really speak about like the interesting ways in which we account for like your contribution and how many tokens you get, et cetera. But I think something that I was more involved with recently that I think is, is kind of a cool way of doing things is, is the way that we approached the um, open C like adding open C integration where we went from only supporting auctions, like ascending price ETH auctions to now uh, being able to buy any item on OpenSea. Yeah, I don't know if the market has like priced this in to party party bid yet. Like, I, I have people been using that like crazy, or because to me this is such a cool feature. I didn't think it was possible. People have been using it, but what we've noticed, which we're actually like, I've spent a lot of my day working on this. It's coming very soon. Maybe by the time this this podcast is released, um, the problem is is that the OpenSea market moves quickly. And people aren't always fast to get all the ETH together in a party. So basically, right. let's say, oh, I see, I see solvency, you know, number 20 is for sale. I'm going to start a party. It takes a few days to get the ETH together. But by the time that the ETH is together, solvency number 20 has sold. And uh, the smart contract was designed to only allow that party to purchase that specific token ID, right? So you need to wait for the party to expire and then you claim your ETH and you're just kind of sad, right? So um, that's the major problem that we had. We have we've had a lot of successful OpenSea uh, purchases through uh, party party bid, and that's great. But we've also seen you know ETH come together over time just to see the item get delisted or sold. But we're solving that in this next release uh, where we now have collection based parties that are like you're still targeting a specific collection. Let's say oh we want to target the solvency collection. But then you, the party creator specifies like a list of what deciders, at least internally in the solidity, uh, which are people who are allowed to pick the specific item. So that means like, oh, we're going to raise money to buy a solvency piece, but I'm going to defer to Steve and Nicholas to be the ones to actually decide which solvency piece is it that we actually buy. So picking token ID from contract, same contract address. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Just removing the token ID um, and like a few other changes, right? So then that allows you to um, not have this problem where the item gets delisted or sold and, and like you just have to claim your and kind of move on to the next thing. So is the party at all times targeting a single token and then they can just change what token it's pointing at? No, it's like the token ID is essentially empty. And then when the purchase occurs from the decider, they send in the token ID and stores that uh, with the one that it's purchased. Oh, interesting. Okay. You talking about this made me think it would be interesting to be able to point it at NFTX also, like let's just buy a floor or whatever. Well, so this, this kind of, this kind of goes into a little bit about how the solidity works, which I think is, is pretty cool. So when we were trying to develop, like, how can we get this contract to buy stuff from OpenSea? We're like, I don't know if you've looked at the Wyvern like order format, but like it's it's really flexible. It's actually very cool and very impressive, but it's just really hard to reason about. There's like, like 32 fields or something. Oh my god, dude, it's insane! And like they all contain <laughs> encoded call data. Like you can't just look at the order and be like, oh yeah, this is an order a punk for 25 ETH. It's like it, you can't decipher it easily as a human, and there's a million fields. It's hard to deal with. So when we first started doing this, we were like, okay. We have specific market wrappers that know how to deal with Zora auctions and, you know, foundation auctions. Like we just need to, you know, 
go down and figure out how these Wyvern orders work and like write a specific, you know, Wyvern integration for this like new code that we were writing that internally is called party by like in, in the contracts. Um, and then I actually went down that route and it was just so hard to deal with these like Wyvern orders. I was getting pretty frustrated and we had a call where we were jamming um, and like just trying to figure out what's the right way to go about this. Do we just need to keep grinding on this bespoke Wyvern integration? But then we kind of came up with this approach where we we're like, we there is an OpenSea SDK that allow that generates these for you. It makes it very simple. Like you just call a JavaScript function with like you know parameters that make sense, and then it constructs the transaction for you. So we were like, why don't we just grab the transaction data that's generated from the OpenSea SDK? And then pass that as like raw call data into the contract and then just kind of ensure that the NFT, that like the NFT that we expect to be bought is like received um, like custody by the contract after that call data is executed. So when you raise enough funds and then buy something from OpenSea, actually what happens underneath the hood is that you send in a transaction with like a function calls like buy and then you specify like a target contract, which is like the Wyvern smart contracts and target call data. And then it just, and then it sends, and also I think the value of ETH that uh, the item costs, it kind of delegates to call that uh, contract with that arbitrary call data with that amount of ETH. And then it just ensures that the NFT that you expect to buy is now custodied by the smart contract. So then that allows us to, hey, we want to write a rareable integration. We want to write a looks rare integration or whatever. All we need to know is how to generate that call data. Um, and then we, the solidity contract just checks that that NFT was received. And we also have like an allow list functionality where we're like, we only allow right now, it's only the Wyvern smart contract. It's like the only like target address that is kind of allowed to be forwarded to, uh, but like that's controlled by governance. And like we could add things there as well. So you're spinning up the transaction, you're constructing the transaction using the SDK on the front end, but then the contract is going to verify that it's received the right token uh, that it was anticipating. Exactly. Yeah. So like we had to fork the OpenSea SDK to like, like the OpenSea SDK by default would just kind of like start executing the transaction. So I forked it to just return me the call data that it generated. Um, and like the, and then I just passed that call data to our smart contract and with like Wyvern as the, as the target contract. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like a little bit of a sacrifice in terms of you, you need the party bid front end in order to be able to generate the, and the OpenSea dependency, or I guess the forked version. You don't necessarily need to. Hypothetically, you could do it without it. It's just extremely convenient to do okay, it. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Uh, that's super cool. Um, and you mentioned party buy. I don't know if you want to talk about that here or, or keep that for, for the future. Well, I mean, party buy is just an internal name for kind of like the open sea uh, collection purchasing that we've, that oh, we've okay, been, okay. been speaking about. Um, and uh, yeah, we have something new that, yeah. Um, the, the, what we're working on, which I was describing, where you can kind of like target any item, like with a specific set of deciders, that's called collection buy. Um, that got merged uh, into master and like we're working on getting the front end up very, very soon to play with that. That's very cool. So with this fantasy I have of like an NFTX uh, floor party bit, is that is that viable with what we were just talking about? I guess it might be harder because you wouldn't be able to specify the specific token or it would be unnecessary to do that, I suppose. Well, basically, basically what you would do is like you would start off a collection box, which is what I described with no token ID. You rely on the deciders to choose what the token ID is. And then if we added the NFTX contracts to our allow list of like targets that are okay to execute, then we could, then you could basically have the front end kind of generate the transaction data to like purchase a, a specific item from the NFTX vault. Like, I think there's a different, like by default, I don't know if this is still the same way it works. Like when you buy from the NFTX vault, 
you can pay extra to choose a specific item. So it, I think it would only work that particular approach. So you're like the decider um, would uh, log on to the party vid website and then be like, okay, I want to source this purchase through NFTX. And then I want to pay the extra to like, you know, buy ID 15 and then have the SDK generate the call data and like pass that in as the target call data. And then as long as the NFTX contracts are like um, added to the allow list by governance, then like the whole Got it. That's super cool. Wow. Okay. So collection by party by this is very cool. And you did also mention that like party DAO is not just a party bid, the people who brought you party bid, but other things coming in the future. It's kind of exciting. Well, I mean, as of right now, party bid is the product that we're focusing on and we don't have any like short term plans to like iterate on, on anything that's like dramatically different than, than party bid. But I, I would say that like the behaviors that we've seen on party bid, we're super excited about. And we're like very bullish on uh, collective um, ownership, not just for, I think there's a few different use cases that party bid support. And I think that the party bid supports and like, we're very excited to kind of like keep empowering people like with those use cases. And I think those use cases are varied. Like there's, there's groups of 300 people that, you know, want to buy a crypto punk together and like just resell it from later. Um, there's small groups of people that want to buy like lower priced um, items, but maybe it's only three or four. And it's like a tight knit group that like maybe wants to, you know, delegate governance in the future of that item. Um, and I think that there are also just like communities that want to kickstart their DAO with party bid where like, Hey, we want to create a community. We want to create our token. We want to create a token associated with our community, but we want that token to be backed by an NFT. So you see, um, you know, people kickstarting kind of like DAO, like bootstrapping DAOs or like uh, communities through like kicking off a party bid. So there's a few different. Those are all really interesting different use cases that like we continue want to want to support, and I think we're only going to see more of them in the future. That's awesome. Um, okay, I, one last topic I wanted to cover. I know we've been talking for a while, but one last thing comes to mind, and that is I wanted to talk to you about tooling. Uh, are, are you adapt tools pilled? And uh, what do you think about the state of tooling today? Yeah, I mean, I, I was like a hard hat guy for a while. Well, first of all, I'm like I'm a very much a TypeScript guy. Like I need I need strong types. So like I love type chain, which I don't know if you've used before, but yeah, it, yeah. you basically give it, yeah, you give it an ABI and then it generates like a strongly typed like JavaScript uh, or TypeScript interface to interact with. So I really like types. Um, so like I had this like um, hard hat, uh, like type chain kind of like base repo that like I was always using as my starter repo for a while. And I, and I really liked, um, you know, having the tooling for the strong types and, you know, everything reasonable, but Recently, you know, I heard everyone talking about Foundry and DAP tools, and I, I decided to give it a try. And I would say the the biggest thing is just DS test allows you to write unit tests in Solidity instead of uh, JavaScript, and that has changed the game entirely for me after like a bit of a learning curve. I think that you don't realize how much the context switching when you're writing Solidity and then having to write your tests in JavaScript or TypeScript, especially if you're doing kind of test-driven development, how much of kind of like a mental, like a bit of a mental strain that takes um, and slows you down. Now that I'm using a DS test uh, to write my tests in Solidity, it, like everything feels so much more natural and better, even though there is a bit of a learning curve, like some, some gotchas. So DS test is a part of DAP or DAP.tools, that's part of DAP tools. It's also like what everyone who's using Foundry is is using okay, as well. Okay, it's the same, um, same thing. Okay. Yeah, so Foundry, like Foundry is very cool. It's like extremely fast. It's much, I, I very, 
disclaimer, I only have limited experience with both of these. Like most of my experiences with, you know, a hard hat. Um, but uh, from what I've seen so far, Foundry is like extremely fast, which is awesome, but it's very new. Like, for example, like just verifying a contract on Rinkaby, like does like doesn't didn't work for me and like is it a knowledge issue and i think still does not work at this very moment so like um i guess we're booting up remix again huh? <laughs> yeah well now i have this combo where it's like i like i like test i like build and test like for development like uh using uh using foundry but then to actually deploy i'm using dap tools but like they they have very similar interfaces and like um you know they both you know are friendly with ds tests so like that's the flow i've been taking recently um but i think uh the big thing for me is just like i would recommend even if you just have a few hours if you're a solidity developer just take the time to use ds test whether it's through dap tools or through hardhat or or like or sorry through dap tools or foundry um i think you should see what it's like to write your tests in solidity um i think it really changes i'm super excited about that that's the next thing on my list i also saw there's a foundry tutorial wilson cusack uh put together that people mm -hmm. were passing that's around a good a one bit. Yeah, I'm excited to follow that. Um, so, like you, just the basic idea of what D how DS test works, because I think it makes perfect sense. There was some uh, slightly mean tweet. I don't know if it was you. Someone was saying writing tests for Solidity in JavaScript is like learning dyslexia or something like this. That, that was that was not that was not me. That's a hot take. I mean, uh, I try to keep it more positive. It's just like yeah, it's it's great to do. It's great to do. And yeah. overall, writing if you're writing tests, good on you. No matter how you're doing it, like true enough. Writing tests, all Solidity developers don't don't care that much how you do it as long as you do it thoroughly. <laughs> true, true enough. But so DS test you uh, like it's a contract that you inherit into the contract that you're intending to test, right? It's just, it feels a little bit unnatural because like, uh, you know, I'm used to JavaScript where like, I know, like I, there's kind of like clear expectations about like how to write helper functions or like how to mock out users. And like, it doesn't feel as natural when you're using DS test. Um, and again, I'm not an expert at it. I've just kind of written one particular test suite in it. But the, the big thing for me is like, when I change, one of the big things is like when I change an interface on a contract, when I'm in hard hat and type chain, I need to now like, you know, generate, like even if you automate this, you're now generating new type chain wrappers and then, um, and then looking at all your JavaScript calls and seeing what's not compiling. And like, it's really nice to just instantly, you update your Solidity contract and now you're, you have your tests in Solidity that now are instantly complaining about you. And you just kind of feel like, uh, you just feel like you're in the, like, you're in one environment instead of having to switch between two. And that's like really added to some flow state. Yeah, I uh, I have to admit, uh, I I appreciate hard hat deploy and uh, Ronin, mm -hmm. Sanford, Wigawag stuff, but I can't, all these libraries in uh, hard hat that are overriding or like are adding functionality to ethers and stuff, I find it a mm -hmm. little bit confusing. And also all the like, I think we were talking about it the other day, like all the kind of invisible magic added to global scope in hard hat, I find really confusing. I feel like you. I feel like I feel like you also end up with just a huge amount of dependencies at the end of the day, or at yeah. least I do too. Where I do npm or yarn install, and I'm just like, what is all this stuff, right? And uh, and like there, it's rare, but there have been cases where there've been like malicious npm packages that have been published uh, that like are used for crypto projects that just like forward on private keys, for example, as well. Not to say there can't be malicious packages in in you know other tool sets, but like. I am a bit wary of just the huge dependency tree you, you usually end up getting into if you have like a non-trivial, you know, like JavaScript based, like testing or deploy suite.
Absolutely. And if you're working with another developer and they already have some kind of like a hard hat config and package JSON mm -hmm. and it's got all this stuff in it, you, you don't want to change it too much, but it's like, what are, I, I don't know what goes on inside of most of these packages. And mm -hmm. actually it reminds me a little bit. I, I, I think about that sometimes also when installing helpful extensions in VS code, um, mm -hmm. not exactly the same thing, but I do wonder, I mean, the, the, yeah. some of these odd, uh, solidity extensions, I don't know. Just because it's got like a hundred thousand downloads doesn't really mean anything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we need. I mean, the truth is, you need to stay vigilant out there in crypto because there's a lot of scammers and there's a lot of really smart scammers that can do things. You know, like you know, do a hostile takeover of a popular npm package or replace your favorite interface like with one that you know presents a transaction that you're not actually deciphering on your ledger when you're clicking yes. You're like, oh yeah, it's just some random call data. Like probably is right. You know, there's there's a lot of things to to be mindful of. Yeah, I was thinking about that when you were talking about the OpenSea call data. Like I, I noticed, I can tell you that it's 32 or I think I'm right about that, that there are 30, 32 <laughs> elements because I was doing it on a hardware wallet and had I had display all the call data option enabled. So I was like, oh my God. It's like uh, three clicks to the right and then confirm for every single one. It's just like impossible. I mean, think about how much liability there is just on the OpenSea front end, right? We think a lot about Solidity smart contracts like security. Like the, the front end is really important too. It could generate malicious call data that most people don't check. So um, there's just like a lot of different layers of security to, to think about and not take for granted. Absolutely. Uh, Steve, it's been amazing talking to you. Um, where should people follow you on the web? Yeah, uh, find me on Twitter, Steve, K-L-B-N-F. Um, that's, the, that's the best spot to, to hit me up. And you're, so you're mostly working on PartyBit. Any other cool projects coming up you want to talk about? Yeah, no, uh, I'm working on uh, PartyBit a lot. Um, I'm also, yeah, working uh, with Ezra on uh, an upcoming drop. And cool. um, I also do angel investing and buys a few companies uh, as well. And then uh, spend a decent amount of my time just doing uh, degenerate, uh, exotic <laughs> DeFi and NFT stuff as well. So um, I know how to keep myself busy. Keeping up with the times. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you and I met for the first time in uh, New York for NFT NYC. And uh, Steve is one of my favorite Twitter accounts. Uh, talk straight truth directly to the timeline. So it's always fun to, <laughs> always fun to hang out and get to catch up. Hell yeah, dude. Um, awesome meeting you in New York. Always awesome catching up with you. And this was a great conversation. So thank you so much for facilitating it. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. And uh, hopefully we'll get to talk to Anna about more party bid stuff in the future. Uh, pretty excited about everything you're working on. So thanks so much. Absolutely, dude. Take it easy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Solidity Galaxy Brain. I put extensive links to the topics we discussed in the show notes. Links to subscribe to the podcast are available at soliditygalaxybrain.com. You can keep up with me on Twitter at Nicholas with four leading ends. Until next time.